I'm saying Happy New Year's to anybody who joined us online a little bit late, or perhaps you came in a little late. I know you were probably up late, right? It's a special day where we celebrate the new year, but it's also an opportunity to, to, to look back over our shoulder. You saw in that video, that was just what we did last year. When you think about it, it's like, man, God has used us to do a number of things in our community um, and in our church. I just praise God for Central and all that it is doing. What a blessing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of a church that's doing things, actually moving and, and, and changing lives. People are being baptized, and it, it's just a great celebration. Well, this is the time of the year that we start to sort of consider what we're going to hold on to or let go of, which habits, which goals what beliefs that we have that we're going to hold on to or maybe let go of. A series of events over the past couple of years have people sort of reconsidering their faith, whether they should hold on to it or let go of it. Just in 2022, there were a number of events that happened. We had the wars in Ukraine. We had mass shootings happening. And at the end of this year, moving into 2023, we have this triple threat of viruses, you know, the coronavirus, RSV, the flu. It's a lot going on and has people thinking, does the God of the Bible exist? Or maybe how relevant is he in the midst of a crisis? It's a basic question that people are now thinking. They're thinking differently about Christianity altogether. People are thinking that maybe Christianity is a social experiment that sort of run its course, and now we need to put our trust in something else, maybe science. But today we're kicking off a new series that we've entitled, Why Christianity? And this is an opportunity for us to look at Christianity with fresh eyes. We're going to look at the map we're going to look at, which is our Bible. We're going to look at the man, which is Jesus, how he compares to other men or religious figures. And we're going to look at the methodology. Um, what does uh, salvation mean according to the scriptures and what other people actually believe? And how does what we believe measure up to other belief systems? And so we're going to look at the scriptures and begin to question why Christianity. Let me say a brief prayer. Lord, we just thank you, God, for the opportunity that we've been given to dive into this topic of Christianity. God, we ask that you would open up our eyes and ears to your word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Today we're going to look at the, a fresh look at the map. The map is our Bible, what Christians call the words of God, but says who? Right? Some of you might be thinking, well, if the Bible was written by man, how could it be from God? Hasn't the Bible been translated so many different times we don't know really what it says? And it's been evolving over years and years, so it really does even mean what it used to mean in the past. You know, maybe this Bible needs to be put on the shelf with all the other religious books that are out there, because perhaps it's just mankind, his own way of trying to find meaning in life. Is that what it's about? 
Well, hopefully I'll be able to answer your questions and also address some of those perspectives that I just brought up in this message today. It's going to be a bit of a challenge, so hold on to your seat. I'm going to go through a lot of material quickly. I'm going to have to teach you a little bit before I begin to preach this message. So I want you to prepare yourself. So if you're an agnostic, maybe if you're an atheist, or maybe you have no religious affiliation at all, this message is for you. It's an opportunity for you to get a fresh look at what the Bible actually says and how it works. Um, for those of you who are online and those who are in person, I know that I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions. So here's what I'd like you to do. At the end of the message, I want you to go over to our Instagram and Facebook stories and just type in any questions that you might have. And this Wednesday at 6 p.m., I'm going to jump online and go live and do my best at trying to answer some of the questions that you might have based on the topic that I'm going to actually cover this morning. So I used to see these bumper stickers that would say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. That was a common phrase for me when I was in church as a child. Um, people would say that. It was just sort of this blind faith that people would have. And I was one of those kids that would ask questions. I'd say, well, if that's the case, if God said it and we're supposed to believe it, why did Jesus do miracles? And then they would say, you need to go sit down somewhere, you know, you little smarty pants, right? That was me. But I think that's a fair question, isn't it? I mean, if God has given us these brains that we have, I think he wants us to use it. And just because we come into church doesn't mean that we have to sort of take off our critical thinking cap. I think he wants us to, get, he wants us to think about it a little bit. He gives us enough information so that we can step out on faith. So I ask the question, is the Bible fact or fiction? Is this something that we can actually trust in? Well, let me start out just giving you some basic facts that's widely understood and believed uh, about the Christian Bible that we have today. Just some basic facts about it. It consists of 66 distinct books that make up what we have called the Bible. Um, it's written over 1,600-year time span. Um, the Bible is written by at least 40 different authors. It's been written on three different continents, and that is Africa, Asia, and Europe. It also is, was originally written in three different languages, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and, and Greek. The book consists of a number of different types of literatures as well, poetry, prophecy, songs, history, and letters. So I want to give you today three reasons why I believe that you can trust in what we call the Bible, the holy book, the words of God. The first thing is, it's a simple one, that the Bible claims to be from God. Yeah, the Bible actually makes the claim that it comes from God. If you look in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, the apostle Peter wrote this. He says, no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is basically explain, explaining that the men or the prophets of the Old Testament, they were not speaking nor were they writing under their own volition, but they were moved along by the power of the Holy Spirit to speak and write what was actually written in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul also says something similar in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Take a look at what it says. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When he says breathed out by God, he uses the Greek term theonuskos, which basically means God breathed, meaning that God sent us through man the words that he would want them to say and to write that makes up our scriptures today. When the apostle Paul wrote all scriptures, he's talking about not only the Old Testament text, but he didn't realize that he was actually talking about the New Testament text, which wasn't even formed yet. How do we know that? Because Jesus, he really spoke about this. It was Jesus that confirmed the Old Testament's authority, but it was Jesus that also promised that he would give us an authoritative New Testament through his disciples. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples. He said in John chapter 14, 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So the disciples wrote a lot of the scriptures that we have in the New Testament, and many of them spoke of the other people's or disciples' letters, and they spoke of it as if it was scripture, as it was God who had wrote these things. You know, all of writings, any book that was written was written by man, but very few claim to be inspired by God. And the Bible claims to be from God. So not only does it make the claim that it comes from God, it also seems to be from God. And I'm going to sort of spend a little time in this particular topic. It seems to be from God. So if this particular book is historically accurate, it would also need to have some supernatural characteristics, right? If it comes from God, it needs to be special in some way. Well, one thing that makes it special, it's the most read book of all time ever written, ever read on the planet. I mean, hands down, this book has been translated into more languages than any other book in the world. Um, It has been intentionally removed from the bestsellers book list. Every year it's removed because every year it would be the number one bestseller, hands down. Um, The YouVersion Bible app, many of you might be familiar with, they have now downloaded over, it has been downloaded over 200 million times. 200 million times. A lot of people are reading the Bible. Other books that have come out typically decline in popularity over time, but the Bible has clearly stood the test of time, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, so what, you might say? So what, it's popular. People like to read books, and they happen to like this book. Does that mean it is true? Does that mean that it's something that we can trust in? Some of you might be thinking about a a thing that teachers would do with students, and that was this illustration to help kids understand how messages can change over time through people. So you may have remembered this, where the teacher would write down a sentence on a sheet of paper and give it to one of the students. They would read the sheet of paper, and then they would whisper that sentence in the ear of another student. And then they would go to the next student and say that same sentence to the other student. And they would get all the way around to the other end of the class, and then that last person would state what they heard that person say. And as you know, it would be an entirely different message. 
Well, let me tell you a little bit about just the Bible. One, we do not have any of the original documents that was written by the original authors. We do not have that. What we have are copies of the original, okay? So you may be asking, well, there it is. No, why is that the case? The reality is, is that there are very few documents of anything written that was about 2,000 to 3,000 years ago. And the main reason is because most documents were written on material that simply would not stand the test of time. The technology didn't exist back then for materials to be, things that be written on material that would last that long. The Bible itself was originally written on uh, uh, papyrus paper. Papyrus paper was made out of mashing reeds, but it had the consistency of a brown paper bag. And as you know, if a brown bag is there, over years, it's going to begin to come apart. And that's exactly what would happen. It would simply uh, sort of come apart. So the oldest copies of the Bible we have are found in two places in Egypt and also the Qumran Caves located in the northeastern side of the Dead Sea. These places are extremely dry, right? So the climate was pretty consistent over an amount of time, and also they were in protective containers of some sort, in jars, right? All historical documents of any kind that are that old would have the same limitations as it relates to preservation, okay? So if you're gonna really look at the Bible and ask yourself, okay, is this something that we can trust in? You would need to do something called textual criticism. And I started looking up some research and I found that Dr. McGrath, he is the doctor at, uh, uh, doctor of science at Oxford University, and he explains the importance of textual criticism as it relates to the Bible and other documents during that time. I want you to take a look at this two-minute video just so you can understand. I think he does a better job than I can do on textual criticism. Take a look. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts you have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in existence. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War. 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or 10 copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous history of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. 
and we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the authorities from Greece. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Documents, the documents that Dr. McGrath compares the Bible to are the very documents that make up what's in our history books today. So if you go to school, any um, elementary school, high school, college, the information that we have in those books come from the books that he just compared the Bible to. And you can see that clearly the Bible exceeds the acceptable standard of what would be considered an actual historical record. So we do have some variations of the text. When I use the term variations, that means there's differences between the text. Well, one of the reasons is why there's variations or differences in those texts is the fact that we have so many, right? He just mentioned we had 5,300 copies of handwritten copies of the Bible written in Greek. We have another 10,000 copies of the Bible that was written in Latin. That was the second century language of the time. And then we, we have an additional about 10,000 uh, handwritten copies that were written in different languages like Coptic, uh, Arabic, and Hebrew because the Bible started to be translated in other languages and then sent out. Um, like I said, this was a very popular book. People wanted to read this particular document. So the Bible is extraordinarily unique in the fact that we have so many different copies. One of the world-renowned French philosophers, Voltaire, said this in 1776. He said, a hundred years from my death, the Bible would be a museum piece. And a hundred years after his death, the French Bible Society purchased his home and actually used his living room to send out hundreds of thousands of Bibles all throughout the world. Uh, see, the printing press wasn't uh, developed until about 1400, okay? In the 1400s, that's went out. Um, but this is what Jesus said about the Bible. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. See, this seems like it's from God, doesn't it? Now, the most earliest handwritten document that we have before the printing press was this document called P52. It's called, it, it, P52 is Papyrus 52. And this particular document, you can see, and I think I have a picture of it, it's on display at the John Rylands Library in Manchester, England. And if you see that this, this document is about the size of a credit card, and on it, it has the scriptures written on it. It's written in Greek, and it gives some detailed passage of, uh, passage of scripture. When you read it, this is the text that it says. This is a conversation that Jesus is having with, with, with which everyone understood, which is Pontius Pilate. He was the governor in Rome. 
So here's what the, this piece of document, the oldest document that we have says. It's from John chapter 18, verse 37. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's the oldest handwritten document that we have. Let it sink in what you are reading. If you look at the Roman historian Josephus and also Tacitus, who wrote during that time, who were not believers, they wrote about Pontius Pilate. They knew who he was. He was the fifth governor under the emperor Tiberius. It's historical fact. It would take more faith for you to believe that Jesus doesn't exist than to believe that he does exist. Because there's so many records out there that talk about who Jesus was and this conversation that he had with Pontius Pilate. What's wonderful is that this particular credit card size document we call P52 was dated by uh, historians and archaeologists, and they determined that this particular document was written about A.D. 90 to A.D. 150. What does that mean? That means that the author of that particular text that hand wrote that could have possibly known John in his old age and he likely could have known someone who knew John personally or knew Jesus personally. That's how old that document is. See, the New Testament is filled with real people, and it's filled with real history, with real places. When Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts, he actually included 54 different cities, 39 uh, different countries, and nine different islands. They all can be checked out today. You can find it on the map today. Archaeologists actually use the Bible as their historical roadmap. They go to it to figure out what exactly took place during that time. Now, I mentioned to you that there were 25,000 handwritten documents, and there were some variances between them. And so historians begin to look at the differences in those writings to try to determine, okay, how, how real is this? Was this consistent? And this is what they found out. 70% of the variants or differences were spelling errors. Spelling, how you would spell different things. 29% of the differences were based on grammatical errors or they used different words to represent one word. See, when you translate certain languages from one language to another, sometimes there's not a word that matches in another language that word, and so they considered that as a variant or a difference. So if you read, even read some of the uh, translations that we have today, you'll see that there may be two words that would actually make up one word. That's just how language sort of works. And so that means that 99% of what was written was accurate. It was accurate, and that, you know, most of what people saw that was in there were not meaningful changes. The gist or the ultimate um, substance that was written in the Bible did not change. It was very consistent across the board. The Bible is something that you can trust. Many of you all know that there are 
a number of different English translations itself. If you were to Google, which I'm sure you may have done, uh, a particular passage of Scripture, you might get a number, dozens of different English translations alone. Well, does that mean that there's different change in meaning? Well, it could actually change the meaning based on what translation that you look at. But here's the reality, is that the English language continues to change or evolve. Pick up a, a book by Shakespeare that was written about 400 years ago. What you'll find it is that it's difficult to read because you'll be reading like, what is this? Is this the English language? That's why it's considered a high school or college curriculum because it's difficult to read. Why? It's because language changes. There's new words in the dictionary uh, this year from last year. You'll see that there's words that we add or words change in meetings, in meaning. Here's the good news is that we actually have handwritten documents of the co or copies uh, that was written in the original language in Greek, Hebrew, and, and Hebrew. So you can go online today, go to a website. I, call, I use biblehub.com. You don't have to register for anything. You don't get any kind of solicitation, but you can go on to that website, click on any particular scripture, click on that word, and it'll give you the original Hebrew or the Greek word that was actually used. So it doesn't matter. You can come up with a number of different translations. We can always go back and see what it means. You know, here at Central, we, we like CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Why? It's because we believe that it holds to the historical accuracy of what was written, but it's also written in a way that you can understand it. I also could recommend the English Standard Version, if that's a version that, if you want to look at another version to compare, that is also another version that I would recommend. Okay, that was just the New Testament. <laughs> What about the Old Testament, right? I spoke a lot about that. The, well, the Old Testament was written between 1400 B.C. and about 400 B.C., which is about a thousand-year time span that these books were written, um, and they were written in Hebrew. Extreme, extreme care went into how those writings were written. Rabbis were, were trained at a young age as children to write the Hebrew text. And when they were writing those Hebrew texts to you know, move it from one Bible to the other, they had criteria or rules related to how this was to be written. So there had to be a certain number of columns. Uh, those columns needed to have, be a certain length between 48 by 60, and on every line, there only could be 30 letters on every specific line. And anyone that was writing the Hebrew text, they would have to write and transcribe one letter at a time. Every single book in the Old Testament had a specific number assigned, meaning that they would go through this quality control process to go and actually look at the number that was in each book. And if there were 1,652 uh, A's in that particular book, they would read, go back through it, count it, and if it didn't come up with that number, they would actually destroy that book. That's how um, specific and detailed they were to making sure that this was correct. So prior to 1947, the oldest manuscript that we had of the, the Old Testament was written, um, or that we have, was dated to about 900 A.D., Okay, that was about the oldest Old Testament text that we have. Now, here's what I want to do here real, real quick, is I want to create a human timeline so that you can understand 
the value of what was discovered in 1947 to help you understand how important that was in determining the accuracy of the Old Testament text. So here's what I need. I need three volunteers to come up right now. Come on up. Just come on up. All you got to do is hold something up. You don't have to say anything. You just need to hold something up. So come on up. Just stand up here. I need to. Okay, good. We got two. I need one more person to come on up. All right. Okay, just stand right here. Thank you, thank you. Come on, just stand right here, and, and I want you to follow some instructions. So just to give you an idea as we create this human timeline, um, Jesus historically was born somewhere between 4 B.C. and 1 A.D. So I'm just going to put uh, uh, 4 B.C. just so that you can establish where Jesus was in our timeline. If you can represent that, just stand right here and hold that. So that's 4 B.C. Now... The oldest copy, like I said, of the Old Testament text that we have that was written in Hebrew was written and dated about 900 A.D., okay? So about 900 A.D., if you can come this way, so that means that way down here, okay, is 900 A.D., so there's 900 years between here and here, and now I want to share with you uh, what happened in 1947? 1947, they found in the Qumran Caves, northeastern side of the Dead Sea, these scrolls. These scrolls is what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think I even might have a picture of the Dead Sea Scrolls on the screen for you. And what historians begin to do and archaeologists do is they begin to date these documents. These documents were in a dry place, so they were like, wow, these are unique documents. And here's what they determined, that these particular documents were dated about 100 B.C. So if you can stand right here, and this is sort of our time right now. If this is our time, you're going to get real close to about here. Right? So now you can see in this timeline, this is somewhere where Jesus is born between 4 BC and AD 1. I mean, and, um, and 1 AD. Uh, we have this document now that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this gave us an opportunity to do something. We can evaluate what it said here in the Old Testament text and compare that to. The Dead Sea Scrolls, okay, uh, you, you know, compare that uh, to the Dead Sea Scrolls, to this document that we have here. What is it? It's about a thousand-year timeline between here to there to try to figure out, okay, is this, in fact, real or not? And here's what they discovered, that there was only 5% difference between this document and the document that was written a 1,000 years later. And that 5% difference was primarily spelling errors. You think that's something we can trust in? Amen. Let's give our, our, our volunteers a hand. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. So, you know, it's important that you understand that the Bible claims to be from God. It seems to be from God. But there's, there's, there's another thing here. It, it proves to be from God. And one way that it proves to be from God is that it demonstrates the knowledge of God. Okay? Uh, Johannes Kepler, a famous German astronomer in the 17th century, said this. Science is simply thinking God's thoughts 
after him. God established the laws of physics and then we discover them. There are a number of statements in the Bible that make what he said true. Now, the Bible is never written as a scientific book, right? The Bible is God's written revelation of himself to mankind. But in it, 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 it entails his wisdom, his knowledge, and his understanding. So it was not widely accepted by man that the earth was flat until about the 15th century. But if we look at the text, we'll see that Isaiah wrote in chapter, chapter 40, verse 22, what did he say? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. How, how did he know that? In the 15th century, the, the, the mathematician and astronomer Copernicus, he counted the number of stars in the sky, and he spent his life studying uh, the cosmos. And he said that there was 1,022 stars. And this was widely accepted for many years. But if we look at the scriptures in Jeremiah chapter 33, 22, what did he say? He says, even as the stars of heaven cannot be counted and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. Today, we're still finding stars. We can't count the number of stars that are out there. And somehow, Jeremiah knew that. That was written back at about 600 B.C., by the way. Some of you all know the story, what happened in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages um, of Europe, one of four people died of what was called the bubonic plague or black death. And one of the reasons so many people were dying is because they didn't understand how contagion, viruses, or infections worked. So what they were doing is healthy people would mingle with sick people. But some of the Christians that were there began to read the text, read what the Bible said when this kind of stuff broke out. And they went back to the book of Leviticus. And when they got to the book of Leviticus, it actually said that you need to quarantine people who were sick. That you need to take people who were sick and put them aside for seven days and separate them from anyone else. They didn't know anything about germs. They could not see that there was no such thing as microbiology. Okay, and then look at what it says in Leviticus 13, 5. Then the priests would quarantine him for another seven days if they came and said, you know what, the infection is not gone. He's still infected with this virus. You need to quarantine him for another seven days. It proves to be from God because it demonstrates the knowledge of God. It also demonstrates the, the knowledge of his sovereignty. And when I say sovereignty, that means that the Bible gives us information that happens over time. And God seems to have control over all of these events. You know that there's over a thousand prophecies that came true in the Bible over that time frame, and some of those prophecies are still coming true. No one wanted to be a prophet during that time. And the number, reason, number one reason is because if you are a prophet, you can't be wrong. If you said one thing that would come true and it didn't come true, you would be stoned. And so prophets were like really people who they heard from God and then they would say these things. There is at least 300 prophecies that prophesied the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ. 
There's even one that specifically prophesied the very location of when Jesus, where Jesus was going to be born. In Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, specifically says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Well, how does that happen? You can't choose where you're going to be born. But somehow, God has control, sovereign control over what's happening. Think about it. There's over 40, uh, there were over 40 different authors written over a time span of about 1,600 years on three different continents. But what's interesting is that all of these books, they have the same story. It's, it's thematically unified. Well, what do I mean? Man, you're thinking, wow, all the, how does this all fit? Well, Jesus came and explained that, that, yeah, it all fits because all of the scriptures point to him. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verse, 20, uh, verse 27. The beginning with Mo- be- then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Jesus meets these people on the Emmaus Road, and he says, look, all of them, scriptures, point to me. He has a conversation with these religious leaders, right? And they're reading the scriptures, and they're studying the laws. They're trying to do what they need to do. And look at what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet, they testify about who? Me. What's he saying? See, the Jewish leaders were searching in the scriptures to find uh, out how they can obtain salvation. And they were doing that by going through the laws, trying to figure out how can I complete all of the laws. But Jesus says that I have come to fulfill the law, meaning I'm going to do everything that is right. And the fact that I know that you can't do everything right, I'm going to now suffer the punishment that you actually deserve. And so he comes and he dies on the cross for the sins of mankind and then says, this is called good news because if you just trust in my works, trust in what I have done, then you would be saved. For it is by grace that you're saved through faith. It's not of yourself. No one can boast about it. But Jesus comes to establish a relationship with a sinful people, with a holy God, by being that payment because God is just. I hope you're getting that. God is just. So he's like, somebody's got to pay for this. I'm going to pay for it so that I might be in a relationship with you. See, it proves to be from God. Here's, I'll tell you, a personal belief, and that is because it has the transformational power of God. See, the people who actually read these scriptures who studied it and began to accept what Jesus said about himself and about what the scriptures taught, began to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. Their lives were never the same again. And these are people that tasted and see for themselves that the Lord is good. They tasted and, and saw for themselves that, yeah, according to Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, that this is good. And so as we look through the scriptures, we'll find even in our own life, there are people who are pole dancers that are now deacons, people who are drug pushers that are now priests, people who are abusive men who are now servants. People have been transformed from the inside out. Just think millions of people around the world have risked their lives to preach it. 
They've gave everything to share it. And ultimately, they would rather die than to deny it. This Bible has transformative power from God. How many people just by the show of hands have read this book and somehow it's had transformative power in your life? Look at that. Look at that. If you're online right now, just type in the chat box that it is transforming me. It is transforming me. See, this book is like no other book. And if you trust in it and you believe that it is real, it changes your life forever. It gives you real hope. It gives you real purpose. It gives you real meaning in life. When I read it for myself and began to believe it and trust in what Jesus said about himself, my life was changed forever. And I just want to encourage you to continue to investigate. Ask questions as we go through this series. I want to give you a couple action steps here. For those of you who still have questions, I want you to head on over to our Instagram and Facebook stories and just type in questions that you might have. Once again, I'm going to come back and I'm going to go live on Wednesday at 6 p.m., do my best to try to answer some of the questions that you might have. For some of you, you might be saying, okay, made a lot of sense there. Tell me more. Hold on to your seat. I'm going to be preaching next week on the man, who Jesus was, what makes him distinctively different, and then we're going to look at the methodology. I want you to walk along with me on this journey. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to question. We want to give you as many answers as we possibly can. For those of you who said, you know what, I get it. I haven't been reading it like I should. I want to encourage you to get into a life group. You can go into our website and just sign up for any life group that, you, that are out there. We have a number of different opportunities. This is an opportunity for you to be in a small group and ask those questions and get direct answers. Build relationships with people who are being transformed by the renewing of their mind. Their lives are being changed. Get involved into a life group. Perhaps you heard this message, and you're like, I get it. I, I've heard this story before, but I've heard it in a different way where I want to accept it and believe it. Well, I want to encourage you to take a step this morning. There's some cards in front of you if you're in person, and just fill that card out. Drop it off at the welcome desk. There's a couple boxes on that card that says, I'm interested in getting baptized. That's the first step of obedience. So if you believe what I've just said, just fill that out. I'm going to personally get in contact with you and talk with you on how easy it is to come and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Baptism is that first step of obedience where you publicly proclaim in front of all the people that, yeah, I'm a new creature. God's working in me opportunity for you to take that step. Start out the year right, right? I also would encourage you to get into a life group as well. The words of God is something that you can trust in. You can believe it. It's real. It claims to be from God. It seems to be from God, and it proves to have the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for your word. For your word is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. God, somebody out there may be scratching their head thinking, hmm, are you real? 
God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would meet them right where they are, whether they're here in person or maybe at home. Help them to trust you. God, we ask that you would allow this series to move in the hearts of people so that we might be the people that you called us to be. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen, amen. Here at Central, the first Sundays of every month, we do something that Jesus wanted us to do on a regular basis, and that's something we call communion. And communion is our opportunity to remember the great sacrifice that Jesus made for us. He died on the cross so that we might be in a relationship with him. If we believe in his sacrifice, we then would be saved. I wanna give you an opportunity to pray. Pray to the Lord right now. Ask for forgiveness before we go into communion. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, God, for, for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, God, for dying for us. You said if we confess our sins, you'll be faithful and just to forgive us. Forgive us for all unrighteousness. Amen.